let's be real. Lawsuits are no fun, but with Paulson and Nace, at least they are a little easier. With two DC-born partners, Paulson and Nace will fight for you the way only a Washingtonian could. Paulson and Nace handles medical malpractice, wrongful death, and other complex injury cases involving negligence. So if you have been hurt or lost a loved one because of someone else's mistake or negligence, call Paulson and Nace for a no-obligation consultation. Visit www.paulsonandnace.com or call 202-463-1999. Today on CityCast DC, did you know that DC's public housing authority is the poorest performing one in the whole country? Yikes. Now, DC is great at a lot of things, but making sure all residents have access to safe housing is not one of them. The federal government gave DCHA a scathing review and some time to improve. The deadline is up tomorrow, so how's it doing? Morgan Baskin covers housing for WAMU, and she's here to fill us in. Today is Tuesday, May 30th. I'm Bridget Todd, and here's what DC is talking about. So Morgan, we spend a lot of time on this show and in DC news kind of locally talking about the public housing woes in a really vague and sort of detached, distant way. But you've talked to a lot of people directly who are impacted by this. What have their experiences been like and what's the real kind of human impact and cost of the DCHA's inefficiencies? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think it's easy to talk about the DC government in the abstract and hear that there are problems in the abstract. Um, But effectively, what all this boils down to is there are tens of thousands of our neighbors living in this city who have been waiting for an affordable place to live, uh, in some cases for 20 or 30 years. And folks who are, I guess, lucky enough to to get public housing often live in complexes that are falling apart around them. Their kids are having asthma attacks and being sent to the hospital because of mold that's in their buildings. Um, their ceilings are literally collapsing. Their pipes are bursting. They might not have access to clean drinking water or to their kitchens because of rodents. So this is a very real and a very significant problem, you know, not just for a handful of people, but for literally tens of thousands of people who live in public housing and who are waiting uh, to get public housing. You use the word neighbors, you know, why should I care about this if I'm not on the wait list and this doesn't seem to like really impact me directly? Is it just an issue of I should care about what's happening to my community, to my neighbors, or is there another reason why somebody who might not think this is an issue that really touches them should actually be paying attention? Yeah, I mean, I do think it's, you know, a question of, of uh, basic empathy for our neighbors. You know, these complexes are spread across the entire city. It's a matter of caring about the people that live next to you. It's also a matter of good financial stewardship. You know, people pay taxes and this is what their tax money is being spent on are complexes that are violating housing codes every single day in the city. So I think people should care for a number of reasons, most importantly, because, you know, these are human beings who are are being impacted by poor financial leadership and poor political leadership, but also because this is what our money is being spent on. And I think it's important that if we're giving the city money to, to spend on social services, that it's being spent the right way. And right now, people live in truly appalling conditions. Why is DCHA setting up a new wait list? The D.C. public housing waiting list has been closed for over 10 years at this point because there were so many people who had applied that the city just knew it would not have enough 
public housing units to house all of them. So the, so the city has something like 55, 56 public housing complexes, which amounts to around eight or 9,000 units. There were 21,000 people who had applied. So, you know, just basic math there, it's not going to work. So 10 years ago, the city had to close the waiting list and it said, well, we have more than enough people on this list more people than we have units for. And that information is quite outdated at this point. I mean, like I said earlier, there are some people who have been waiting decades for public housing and their lives have completely changed. You know, some people put their names on the waiting list when they didn't have any kids and now they need a home with three or four bedrooms to accommodate their kids. Or maybe they were raising a family and now they're seniors and need to just live by themselves and that's not what's being offered to them. So the goal, I think, that is motivating the housing authority to change their waiting list system is to keep good information about what people actually need housing-wise. And it is their goal that a new waiting list that would allow folks to apply for specific public housing complexes and, in my understanding, for apartments with specific bedroom sizes in those apartment complexes would help meet people's needs better. What's going to happen to all the folks who have been on this waiting list, the old waiting list, for, you know, 10 years now? The D.C. Housing Authority over the last few months has been reaching out to folks on the waiting list and inviting them to go to what they call lease up events uh, at MLK Library. So essentially sending people mailers and saying, hey, if you're still interested in getting public housing, you know, come to one of these lease up events. We'll check your eligibility. And if you are eligible to live in one of these units, we can try to lease you up there. The problem, you know, as we've been talking about, is that there are 21,000 people who are on the list. It's very hard to reach all those people. Their addresses and contact information might not be up to date. And there are simply, again, more people who need public housing than we have space for. So there were a number of these lease up events where thousands of people showed up waiting in line for many hours to check their eligibility. But ultimately, at many of these, only, you know, six families or a dozen families actually ended up moving into an apartment or leasing up. It's definitely tricky numbers wise. Who were some of the people that you met there and what were some of the stories that you heard from them? We met a whole bunch of people at these events, you know, people in their 60s who have been on the waiting list for 30 years who live in really unsafe communities. I spoke to one woman who was shot herself, who saw her son die because of gun violence uh, in the neighborhood that they live in and who is really hoping that the D.C. Housing Authority could help her move out of her current apartment to feel a little bit safer. You know, talk to one man who is unhoused um, and he's been living in Anacostia on the streets for 10 years, 15 years, um, and has been on the waiting list that entire time. Um, So these are people, you know, with a real need to find a safe place to live and a healthy place to live. And unfortunately, you know, the need is is really great. And we just don't have units for all those people in public housing complexes. I read about that first woman that you were talking about. Her name is Michelle Jennings, and she was on the wait list for 32 years. Do you know where she's been living? Yeah, so Michelle is living uh, in Ward 8, if I'm remembering correctly. And it's in, in an apartment, like I said, where she um, and her son were both victims of gun violence. It's a story that you hear all too frequently when you, you talk to folks who've been on the waiting list. It's time to get dressed up, DC. So Others Might Eat is having its Young Professionals Network Spring Soiree that's to help raise funds for homelessness in DC. The gala is on the evening of May 17th at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. There will be live music from DJ Heat from the Washington Wizards, photo booths, food, and even a special appearance by a former actor from Pretty Little Liars. Wow. 
There will also be a canned food drive, so be sure to bring a few cans to support Sum's Food Pantry. Grab tickets before they're gone at sum.org slash spring soiree. That's S-O-M-E dot O-R-G slash spring soiree. See you there. So for people like Michelle, you know, what's going to be better or different or improved with this new waiting list? Well, the goal is with the new waiting list that folks are able to apply for housing at specific complexes. I think this will be particularly important for people with kids who are hoping to either stay in their current school districts or move into a different school district. It is ostensibly, you know, geared toward giving families more choice. With the current waiting list, it's sort of a a roulette situation. You know, the housing authority might call you up and say, hi, we have something available, but it's halfway across the city and it's only two bedrooms. Even if you have four kids or five kids, the fit is not always great. So the goal with the new site-based waiting list is that families will be able to apply to complexes of their choice and hopefully apply for housing that is big enough to meet their family's needs. So this I found like pretty shocking. DCHA is the poorest performing public housing agency in the entire country. It has the lowest occupancy rates at about 70%. Uh, I mean, first of all, that is really disappointing and disheartening. But also, I feel certainly this kind of deep of an issue is not going to be fixed entirely with a new waitlist system. You know, are they trying anything else to really improve the way that DCHA functions? They are doing so many things right now. I'm glad you asked this question. So the Federal Housing Department released a pretty damning report last year, which you you mentioned, talking about how the Housing Authority in D.C. is the poorest performing out of any like large public housing agency in the country because something like 2,500 of its units out of the eight or 9,000 that it has have been taken offline. They're vacant because they're in really poor condition. This was sort of a strategic choice on the part of a previous DCHA director, Tyrone Garrett. You know, four or five years ago, he talked openly about the fact that these units were in really poor condition. He didn't think people should be living there. And he began to more aggressively take units offline. And that is part of what led to the incredibly low occupancy rate that people are rightly upset about today. Part of the problem is not just that we have a low occupancy rate, but that the quality of the housing that we do have is really, really bad. You know, as I mentioned, mold is always an issue. Pests, just like the structural integrity of a lot of these buildings is not great. They're very, very old uh, and haven't been substantially remodeled or rehabbed in decades. And so a big part of this is making sure that the housing that we do have uh, is safe for people to live in uh, so that the housing authority will have a greater sense of urgency when it comes to moving people in. I'm curious, when the previous administration took those houses offline, was that in conjunction with a plan to improve them or replace them in some way? Or was it just like, we're taking these offline, big chunk of our housing, not available? They were not taken offline all at once. This has been sort of a slow attrition over the years. You know, every year, you know, a couple hundred um, units are taken offline because of their condition. At the time, uh, the previous housing authority director had submitted applications to HUD, the federal housing agency, to basically raise, uh, demolish and completely rebuild something like 11 or 12 of the, uh, the public housing complexes that are in the housing authority's portfolio. Those applications are in various stages of completion. Um, I think HUD is still reviewing some of them. It's also unclear whether the current director has sort of supported that 
goals. The housing authority seems to have pulled back from that plan a little bit. So, you know, at the time, a, a generation ago with the housing authority, the plan was, okay, our units are in really bad shape. We're going to remodel a lot of the complexes and then move people back in. Of course, that plan would take many, many years to complete, but it was still a plan. The plan right now is, well, we've been criticized by HUD for not letting people live in a solid like 20% of the units that we have. Let's try to get people to move back into them and then make, you know, very slow and sort of uh, comparatively insignificant repairs to get our occupancy rates back up so that we don't get in trouble from HUD. So I know the feds gave DCHA three months to get its act together or risk more intervention. Do you know what happened with that? Well, so the the deadline that HUD gave the housing authority to fix dozens of these problems is actually not until the end of May. So the housing authority has, I think, one day left. It's the last day of May uh, to address those findings. And we'll see whether that ultimately ends up happening. You know, Director Donald said during the agency's last board meeting that it had closed out something like 30 or 40 of the findings that HUD flagged out of the 102. And it's currently working with HUD on another 30 of those. You know, she made it pretty clear that the agency was not going to meet necessarily all of the 102 findings or close out all the 102 findings that HUD flagged. But, you know, she she seems to be pretty optimistic about HUD not intervening further uh, in the Housing Authority. Brenda Donald has been, like, pretty heavily criticized for how she's been handling the the department. And then she abruptly announced that she was resigning before her contract was up. Uh, Do you think that her departure is going to help or hurt these transitions? I think it's really tough to leave an agency in the middle of making a lot of very dramatic changes. You know, I think reasonable people can disagree about the direction that the Housing Authority needs to take to some extent. But, you know, DCHA just completely rewrote its administrative plan and how the agencies run. The entire staff is now undergoing training on implementing the new waiting list, you know, making important decisions about what kind of repairs and maintenance work to do in in the portfolio as it stands now. And then to leave in the middle of that when your staff is being trained on on completely new protocols, I think is a really tough thing. And part of the problem, I think, with the housing authority is that there has not been, you know, in the long view real vision or leadership about what to do with it. You know, we've had something like four or five different directors over the course of the last 15-ish years. And that's really tough because you're ping-ponging between a director who says, well, I think we should completely demolish and rebuild half the portfolio. And then the next one says, well, I don't know that we have the money or the time to do that. So these are these are really significant decisions that are being sort of teased out and then pulled back over a very short period of time. And ultimately, you know, again, to to tie this back to why it matters, there are people who live in these buildings. So it's not an abstract problem. It's people who are being told, well, maybe you'll have to move out next year. Well, actually, we're not going to do that. So it's tough, I think, for everybody involved. Yeah. What do you think is next for DCHA? Yeah, we'll we'll see what happens when it uh, gets a new director, hopefully this year. Director Donald, I don't think, has given an end date for her tenure. It's unclear whether she'll leave, you know, this month when, when HUD is supposed to close out its findings or in September when her contract ends. She's not given us a last day. So I, I think the vision and what happens next will really depend on whoever takes up the mantle and, and lays out a plan for how to run the agency for the next five or 10 years. Morgan Baskin, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Before you go, here's some news. 
President Joe Biden vetoed a resolution to block D.C.'s police accountability legislation. The act includes restrictions on certain policing tactics and expanding public access to police disciplinary records and body camera footage. Biden called them, quote, common sense police reforms. His veto came on the third anniversary of the police killing of George Floyd. Also, the commanders might not be the commanders for too much longer. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office denied the football team their trademark because it's already taken. The team could buy the rights from Martin McCalley, a D.C. man who owns versions of the name, or file a response arguing for a trademark. Or they could just pick a new name. Any suggestions? And finally, students at Lunsford Middle School in Loudoun County are battling in elaborate fight clubs, often with parental support. Administrators found out after fighting broke out in school. They discovered social media posts that exposed the fight club activity, some involving betting and tournament brackets. What's even weirder is the school principal says many parents were aware of the fight clubs and even hosted them. So I guess the first rule of middle school is you don't talk about middle school. That's all for today here on CityCast DC. And if you enjoyed the show, why not tell a friend, leave us a review, and check out our morning newsletter too. It's called Hey DC, and you can sign up at our website. We'll be back tomorrow morning with even more news from around the city. Talk to you then. That was perfect. You're a natural at retuning lines. <laughs> It's, you know, public radio does its training. (laughs) 